Well, all right. Thank you so much, worshipers. And uh, also, I want to say thank you to our IT folks and other helpers who uh, help us uh, record these and get them online at the right time. And uh, so we're uh, so blessed by them. So thank you all for helping out as we uh, attempt in our own little way here in our own little corner of the world to redeem the time and to uh, share the whole counsel of God with our fellowship and with all of you. So, uh, so where we are now is we're at the, or in the book of James. So if you want to turn there, we're in the fourth chapter of the book of James. Um, we've uh, obviously been traveling there for a couple weeks. We took a little bit of a break uh, for uh, the Passion Week, and we uh, did some things there, and now we're back into the book of James. So uh, let me just catch you up just briefly. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus Christ, and uh, James here was a real leader in the early church, a leader of the early church, and in fact, um, his life was changed by what? We've talked about several times now. His life was changed by the resurrection appearance of his brother, but really his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible tells us that his family, while he was here on earth, didn't believe in him as Messiah. It was only as they saw him uh, resurrected uh, that they believed on him and uh, made him uh, Lord and Savior of their lives. And James here is writing a really important letter. He's writing, to, just to remind you, to the 12 tribes uh, starting right in the first verse of, the, of chapter 1, uh, the tr tr 12 tribes, uh, no doubt, Jews who became Christians, which are scattered abroad. And James gives us an unbelievably practical book, a practical book, a book that shows what our lives will look like as we surrender our lives to the Lord, count on his finished work at the cross and his resurrection, and as he comes to live and reside in our lives, and then as we yield to the Spirit, what our, what our lives will begin to look like. And uh, he started out and talked to us, talked to the, uh, uh, the 12 tribes, and then, of course, to us through the written word here about how trials can benefit us spiritually, how trials can benefit us. And we uh, moved through that in our first chapter and how we can continue to surrender to God and to lean into the things that God has for us in the trials. And uh, uh, if you're going through trials now, which a lot of us are, uh, you'll want to uh, review that and get the tape if you like. And then uh, we moved into chapter 2. Uh, that talked about a, a lot about personal favoritism, uh, favor, uh, uh, being, uh, having favorites within the church, and uh, whether that be rich or poor or uh, look this certain way or dress that certain way. Uh, but then we moved uh, to the latter part of chapter 2, which is really startling to us. And we uh, here uh, on this side uh, uh, of the ocean in the Western world, Talking about faith without works is dead, James tells us. So we're not saved by works. Of course we're not. Paul taught us that. But we're saved unto good works, and God has works that he wants us to walk in, and he's planned those out, and he has purposes for us. And then last week, a practical look at what the tongue will look like, what our words will look like. 
In chapter 2, it says uh, we shouldn't be people who just talk about the faith. We should really walk the walk. But in chapter 3, James, by the inspiration of the Spirit, talks about what our lives will look like, excuse me, our tongues will uh, sound like, our lives will look like through our tongues, in that we will... uh, 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 by uh, the power of the Spirit and by God's grace, speak the life that's within us. And so we said right at the last or at the closing prayer of last Sunday, you know, when, when people say stuff like, well, you know, I said that, but that wasn't really me. Well, the Bible says what comes out of your mouth really is you and I. And so uh, what's in our hearts comes up and out through our mouths, and wow, what a convicting uh, piece of Scripture, at least it was for me, and I hope for you, and I pray that uh, we put that into practice. Well, now, uh, as we ended last week, we looked at the differences between heavenly wisdom and the wisdom of the world, or even demonic wisdom. That was at the end of chapter 3. And it's there where we find ourselves, and James takes us in verse 1 of chapter 4. I'm going to read through it, and then I'd like us to pray. Beginning right there in verse 1, chapter 4 of the book of James. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust... And do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your, da- or, excuse me, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, 
To him it is sin. Thus says the Lord. So do me a favor and let's pray together and ask the Lord to speak to us by his spirit, truth and wisdom here, and give us the resource to go out and live it. Lord, we come here this morning, whether we're here uh, like I am or we're in our living rooms or our dens or wherever we're listening to this, Lord, it doesn't matter. Your word is a two-edged sword, a double-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Lord, it's active, and we count on that. And we ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts here this morning as we do our part. We'll yield and pay attention. Lord, we need you uh, to do this so that we could go out and love a hurting and dying world with your good news, your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't think you can start this chapter by forgetting what was at the end of the last chapter. End of the last chapter, we wrapped up the difference between godly, heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above or above the sun, from wisdom below the sun, worldly wisdom or demonic wisdom. And in verse 18, it says this, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we see that there's this uh, uh, right relationship that we're called to as Christians. First, we're called to a right relationship with God. We can have peace with God through the blood of His Son. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus in a walk according to the Spirit we know from the book of Romans. But also, there's righteousness and right standing among people. We're to sow peace with other people and to share the good news, which is ultimately the greatest peace that anybody can have. And here now we come to verse 1. Apparently, <laughs> there were wars and fights among them. It says among you here in chapter 1. Of course, we read in the book of James, we've already said it. I kind of summed it up a little bit, but here's some other things to think about. Back in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it appears that there were several within the church who uh, desired in an extraordinary or outlandish way to be teachers, to be teachers. And others thought maybe they shouldn't be teachers or that they should be teachers in their place. And James here tells us and talks to us about who should be the teachers and what the teachers are held to. Well, back in chapter 2 of this very letter, uh, we see that there's a, uh, a war, maybe, uh, amongst the rich versus the poor. A roar, uh, uh, we talked about that in my opening here. In last uh, week, we saw in chapter 3 that there was this war among people, uh, especially as they gossiped and slandered others within the church. As they gossip and slandered others. In chapter 5, we're going to see somewhat of like a, a boss-employer relationship and whether there's wars going on uh, uh, there. Uh, there's in Paul's letters. You, you know this, right? Apparently, some of the brothers and sisters were resorting to courtrooms or the courtrooms of the day to sue one another, a war and a fight 
And uh, uh, there were other things. There were personal fights that are described in, in other letters. And there's uh, some sin in the camp in, in other letters that Paul describes uh, that were uh, in and among the church. There were issues. There were these wars and these fights that would come among them. And look at this. There was war and fights. Of course, for non-Christians, there's war and fights. In fact, there's ultimate wars in fights, we see it. I mean, World War I, World War II, here in the United States, the Civil War, uh, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Afghanistan War, uh, Gulf War, and uh, uh, the Cold War, and all those sorts of things. And uh, uh, there are wars and fights, even on a grand scale. But apparently, there were also wars and fights within the church. And that was a big problem. And that was a big problem. Why do I say it was among the church? Well, you see it here, right here in verse 1. There were wars and fights that come from among you. These big issue things, whether it be slander or gossip or class uh, or uh, suing one another over, uh, uh, you know, lack of payment or, or whatever was going on in the churches or sin and controversy within the church. There were these wars that were coming about. And so you ask yourself, uh, when you hear about them, why do such things come about within uh, the church? Within the church. Well, James here gives us a real theology and an explanation of why wars and fights happen within the church. Look at this. It comes from what? It comes from desires for pleasure that war in your members. Well, what can be some desires for pleasure? Things that are pleasing to you, to you, to the self. What can be some of these things? Well, if we're honest, we can say, well, there's power. Things that please man are power. Things like power, like money. How about this one? Image. Image. Uh, uh, there's uh, uh, possessions and materialism. Of course, United States, the king of um, materialism and possession and its people. And I dare say that the church too, uh, that has infiltrated. All these things have infiltrated this. There's pleasure. There's things that bring pleasure to the, to the flesh, to the body, like, like sex. We can uh, uh, elevate sex to a place where it's a pleasurable thing, but it, uh, uh, it controls us and, uh, uh, you know, uh, has us uh, do the very things that we do. It, it motivates us. It can be sex or it could be drugs. It could be uh, food. Things that are pleasing to the flesh. And we uh, make decisions and move about and make these things kings and idols in our lives so that we want to please ourselves, whether it be power or money or sex or any of those things. Now, we talked about this uh, a few weeks back here at Calvary Chapel. See, God gives us desires. He's given us a desire for sex or for eating or for sleeping. Having the desire is not the wrong thing. Actually, we talked about it in James as he gave, gave us and, and talked to us about how we sin. But what happens is when the desire uh, becomes, uh, for the pleasure, becomes bigger than the, uh, uh, honor, uh, the, the way in which we honor God. In other words, uh, sex. Sex should be inside of marriage between a man and a woman. Okay, great. So the Bible tells us 
to enjoy it there. Well, when we uh, decide that we're going to please ourselves above honoring God, that turns into something that's inappropriate and against God. And we, as a, a nation and as a church, oftentimes, most of the time, uh, many times, we let our lives be led by our desires for pleasure. And this wars in us. Why does it war in us? It wars in us because we are now alive spiritually. We're new creations in Christ. And we have this old nature, an old nature, an old sin nature. We're to reckon it dead, the book of Romans says, and not let it rear its ugly head. And yet we can walk um, uh, according to the flesh or according to the spirit. And uh, when we do, listen to this, what is uh, our number one goal? It's a desire for pleasure. And so we have this war going on in, uh, on in our bodies or in our spiritual lives. And that's a desire for pleasure, the right way versus the wrong way. Get it? It says here, when desires for pleasure war in our members and get to the place that they're bigger than uh, honoring God, listen, it leads to wrong action. You lust. You lust for things. You have to have it. Well, we can, uh, lust is often associated with sex, and uh, uh, rightly so, because people see something or someone, and they must have them. That's lust. In, instead of having the right and appropriate uh, uh, thought and idea, biblically, uh, about how we are to engage uh, with other people especially of the opposite sex, when we're talking about long-lasting covenantal relationships. See, if you lust, though, here's the problem. You'll never have. <laughs> if you uh, live according to the uh, um, principles that God sets forth, you will have. But if you lust in an inappropriate way, your desires are out of control, you'll never actually have. How about this? You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Do you catch that? Well, what do you mean? I've never murdered. Well, Jesus cleared that up in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if, you've hate any, if you hate anyone, if you've hated, you have murdered. Hatred is equated to murder. And in fact, in the book of John, it's, or 1 John, it says that you can't say that you love God and hate your brother. That's lying, the Bible tells us. And so, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You look at the things around you and you are hoping that you could have what everybody else had. There's this jealousy and bitterness that comes out from coveting things. I can tell you, we say it off around here often, you want to see uh, or, or uh, have one of the greatest joy stealers in your lives? Well, here, do this. Compare yourselves with other people. That's the real devastating impact sometimes of social media. People only put out what's great and beautiful and wonderful, and they don't put out the raw reality of real-life situations, and it can start to make people feel bad as they compare themselves to others. And here, right here in James, it says that your desires for pleasure, the inward thoughts of your heart and life, listen to this, dictate whether or not there'll be wars and battles and fights outside the church, of course, but even inside the church. Are you catching it? 
Here it says uh, you can covet and cannot obtain. Again, that thing where you never are satisfied. You fight and war, yet you do not have uh, uh, because you do not ask. Look at this. When your desires for pleasure become so overridingly important, it skews everything. It skews right desires like sex or having things that you need to live and create covetousness uh, or uh, hating sin, uh, which it uh, moves on to hating people. You see, it skews everything here. And it also can skew even your prayer life. I wonder this. I wonder how many people that we're talking to tonight, how, there, uh, how many people that we're talking to today, not tonight, uh, that we're preaching to, that we're teaching to, how many times have you prayed over your desires? You ever prayed over your desires? I don't know. Oftentimes we pray things like this, Lord, get me out of this mess. Lord, give me a bonus. Lord, make me uh, promoted here. But what if we started to look inside ourselves and say, Lord, help me to pray over my desires. Lord, help me to honor you in my desires, the God-given desires that you've given to me. Here it says there's fights and wars going on because our desires are out of control. And when our desires are out of control, look at this, it promotes prayerlessness. It promotes prayerlessness. We don't even ask for the right things. Well, excuse me, before we don't even ask for the right things, we don't even ask at all. Here it says you ask and you, uh, uh, you, you do not have because you do not ask. And then it goes on to say, and even if you do ask, you don't receive because you ask amiss. When there's wars and fights going on within that lead to wars and fi- fights without, in circumstances, in the circumstances of our life, look, it leads to prayerlessness. I wonder if we've even t- uh, talked to the Lord about these issues. And then if we do ask the Lord, our heart's not in the right place. Are you catching this? Our heart's not in the right place. And so we ask wrongly. You see, uh, as I said here either last week or the week before, the Bible is certainly clear that prayer is not so that your will will get done in heaven. It's so that God's will will get done here on earth. And we are uh, praying uh, and asking amiss if we're asking according to our desires for pleasure. And you see that very often uh, on uh, publicized Christian TV. We see people praying for luxury and things of the world that uh, don't really even matter. And they ask amiss their asking according to their pleasures. So this is real revealing about prayer. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer, even over our desires? Ask the Lord to give you a right desire or to have a desire that you have lead to right action according to his grace and purposes. And then ask the Lord to help you and I, to us, for for us, excuse me, to pray according to the way in which he would pray, Jesus Christ, his son. He's the perfect um, um, example of how we are to pray to the Lord. And as you saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, we remember this. There was a very tense situation 
whether or not to go to the cross. Of course, he had set his uh, mind to do that. But Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, Jesus said, thy will be done. And that's when we can get to that place. Oh, we are asking in the right way. You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. How about this? It's really um, uh, uh, pointed here in verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Here, here within the church, within the church, what do we know from Ephesians 2? We talked about it uh, last week. We have, as Christians, three enemies. You know that? We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want you to check something out here. Adulteresses and adulterers, excuse me, adulterers and adulteresses. Remember, God with his people, Israel especially, through the prophets, would always speak to his people uh, when they would go and worship other things, idols, other things. Uh, he would always refer to them in this way, as an adulterer or an adulteress. And in other words, the pain that a bride or a groom feel, a marriage partner feels when one uh, has committed uh, adultery, that same pain happens to the Lord when we go and chase after other things or our desires get so big in our life that we worship the out-of-control desires more than we want to honor God in those things. Catch it? And here he says, friendship with the world. What's one enemy of the Christian? Well, the world. What's the world? Anything outside of God. Any thinking that's outside of God. Any, any place in the world where God isn't. It's the thinking of the world that says, I'm most important, me, myself, and I, and I'm going to set up my kingdom, and if the Lord uh, is there and I can go on Sundays, fine, but it's my life and I'll do with it what I want. That's the world's uh, system of thinking. And here he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's this gulf or chasm or thing between you and the Lord or me and the Lord when we have friendship with the world. We have friendship with the world. And whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now this is something that we see in the Bible. The Bible calls us to be ones who go into the world and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And to, uh, uh, like Jesus, be friend or friends of sinners, right? He didn't come to heal the sick, or excuse me, to heal the healthy. He came to heal the sick. He tells us that. And yet, in the, his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said that we're not to be his disciples, his followers, we're not to be of the world, but we would be, uh, be sent into the world. And that hope, or he was praying that God would protect them from the evil of the world. And so we have this thing where we're not to walk and have the world taint us or spot us or um, uh, uh, make a big impact in our walk. We are to keep our witnesses out in the world and to not love the things of the world. In fact, the church and the the people in it should look way different than the world. 
And what we have now in American Christianity is we have marketing studies and slickness and all the things that we attempt to do to try and get ourselves to look just like the world, to lure people in instead of being separate from the world. We have a, an emphasis on uh, love and mercy and grace of God, but we don't talk about the wrath and justice of God or that the fact that the Bible tells us we're sinners. We have hearts that are deceptively wicked. Who could know it? And we make ourselves very friendly like the world oftentimes. And the Bible here says don't do that. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't befriend the world, even though we're called to live right there out in it. We're to be culture changers. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to be salt and light. You will be if you follow me. Salt and light. Salt, preserving the culture with salt that we throw out there, the word that we throw out, the life that we live by the Spirit that makes people want to know more, have a taste for more. Salt and light in a dark and hurting world, a light up on the hill. We wouldn't hide it under a bush bushel. No way. So that when people see the darkness of the world, they know that there's a light uh, in places. And that is you and your homes. Of course, Jesus is the light of the world, but he also said, we're the light of the world. And so we're not to have friendship the, with the world, and yet we're called to be right smack dab in the world. Get it? Well, how about this? Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain? What's this talking about? The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy. And you can see now uh, uh, a tension here or a, a, a discussion here about the flesh. You know what the Bible says? The carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. So even as Christians, as we ask the Lord to come in our lives, count on his finished work at the cross and his resurrection and for our salvation, and he comes to live in our lives, the Bible tells us that we can walk according to the flesh or walk according to the Spirit. And here, what we do is we walk according to the Spirit. And I think this verse is one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible, if you think it through. One thing that uh, tries to come against us is the world and the world system of thinking. We're called to be in the world, and to be, uh, uh, but not of the world. We're called to be sent out into the world. That was the first thing. But here's the second thing. We're called to live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And I want you to see this. It's so beautiful for your Christian life. The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Remember, Jesus, or excuse me, God had uh, talked about in the Old Testament about a relationship with his people as being like a groom with a bride. Get it? And he was, his heart was stung when they would chase after other gods or make other idols. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that he's jealous for us. And here it says, as we become Christians, the Spirit comes to live in our lives. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit who dwells in us, you should love this. You should circle this. You should draw it up in your Bible if that's what you do. Yearns jealously. In other words, look at this. He has a heart towards you like a husband has towards his wife. 
He's asking that you would come to him and be devoted to him. Catch it. You would be devoted to him only. Single-minded. You wouldn't chase after other things, that, but that you would live your life according to the Spirit who dwells in us and yearns for us jealously. And then look at this, folks. Calls for you to yearn back for him jealously. See, jealous gets a bad name in the world now because, uh, because of how man has made it. And we see things on the news where jealous people do bad things. But jealousy is a great doctrine of the Lord or, or an attribute of the Lord. Why? Because he jealously, in the right way, in the beautiful way, yearns for your hearts. And then he calls you to live by the Spirit and yearn for him too. But i got to tell you something, folks. That's a tall order. That's a tall order. How do you yearn for the Lord only? In fact, uh, Jesus says in the uh, New Testament, doesn't he? Jesus says, you know what the greatest law is? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I listen to that and read that and go, whoa, I'm in trouble. And here's the next verse, though. What great news. God uh, says he yearns for you jealously by the Spirit because you're now a spiritual uh, being. You're, uh, spirit, uh, you've become a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And you live now according to the Spirit and can live according to the Spirit. But how am I to love the Lord back? Well, verse 6, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for verse 5 and verse 6. It's such a tall order. God never gives a great demand of you without giving you the resource and strength to live that demand. Here it is. God says in verse 6, He gives more grace. More grace. You need more grace to live the Christian life. What's he talking about? Well, let me go on and just read you a couple more verses. Then we're going to talk about it at length. Therefore, or excuse me, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, this is one of the first verses I ever taught my family. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Comes from Proverbs 3.34. You also see it in the book of 1 Peter. But here it is, there's this principle of God, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By the way, what's the third enemy of the Christian? It's the devil. What was the devil's sin that had him cast out of heaven? Pride. How did the uh, devil, the enemy of our souls, trick Adam and Eve? Oh, guess what he said to Eve? Wouldn't you just like to be like God? Pride. And here, uh, here's, here are the ways in which desires uh, can be capitalized on by these enemies, by the world, by the flesh, by the devil. These desires are okay, but they can, uh, th- these enemies can come and make them uh, go so out of proportion that they become idols in your life. They become more important than honoring God. And here he says... Uh, if you want to live single-mindedly, to know uh, uh, Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, one thing I do, just press towards the goal of uh, God the Father in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us 
in his letters. Just one thing, just being single-minded. Well, man, do I want to be one who's devoted to the Lord. Great. Understand this. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. Very important. Very important. What is this? God gives, or God resists the proud. What is pride? Well, that word there is showing yourselves, showing myself, showing uh, yourself above other people. Showing yourself above other people. Being haughty. Having contempt for other people. Thinking of yourself uh, more than others. Here's another mark of of pride, and it marks uh, uh, people. Just don't believe you need any help, or uh, uh, don't believe you need anything or anybody. Uh, You want to be just totally independent and uh, uh, not uh, have to rely upon anyone or anything. And especially here in the world of, uh, of God's economy, you know, the whole Bible is telling us that we need a Savior. And pride sets itself up against that. Uh, uh, up against that. Here's another thing that characterizes pride. It's when we rec- don't, or we don't have an ability to recognize that we're sinners. You ever heard it in the modern world? When people are presented with the fact that the Bible says that our hearts are wicked, deceptively wicked, who could know it? There's none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. Most people or lots of people who uh, have not responded to the gospel sit there and say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm better than most. And they do that thing with uh, the scales, right? And that's pride. It shows itself. It presents itself. It stands itself up against God. The world is very prideful. The flesh, oh wow, it's prideful. It doesn't want to admit it needs a a savior or it needs help in any way, but can get around and around. And the, the devil himself was cast out of heaven because of pride. It's who he is to the core and it sets itself up, pride does, against the kingdom of God. Well, keep looking at this. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So grace can come to the humble. What does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to be humble? Well, that word there means not rising from the ground or being lowly. That word there uh, means that, not rising from the ground. Humility means things like this. Admit, admit that we need help outside of ourselves. When you read the Bible, it's clear from the very first chapters that somebody is coming to solve this cataclysmic event that happens right there in the first few chapters that separates us from God. And we need help to come back to him. Admit we need help. That's humility. How about this? Depend upon the, the resources and the, uh, the abilities of someone else rather than yourself. And in this case, the Lord. Being others-centered. Being others-centered or selfless. That's humility. Someone has said this one. It's an often used quote about humility. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less you might want to write that down. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less 
so that we're able to serve others. How about this? In Hebrews 12, 28, it says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God, acceptable with reverence and godly fear. Did you catch that? That's saying that uh, you, uh, me, we, by grace, serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. In Acts 4, verse 33, we see also more grace to serve. Listen to this. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all in their ministry and in their sharing. In other words, this humility of these people to understand that they needed somebody, the Lord, outside of themselves to operate and to live. Well, let's talk about this. If thinking, uh, or if humility or all those things, admitting we need help, depending on resources that are not of ourselves, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, I want you to think about the ramifications of this. You see, most people, when they think you're not humble or you're prideful, think you're some person that's loud and gregarious and you uh, brag and you're arrogant. And of course that's pride. We just described it uh, before we moved into humility. But you know the opposite of that? Humility is not shyness and saying to everybody you're a loser and you're bad and nobody likes you and you uh, don't like to exert yourself in uh, public places or anything, I want you to see something. That kind of living is prideful too. Let that sink in for a minute. That kind of living is prideful too if you uh, define pride the way the Bible defines pride, not the way you think pride should be, So whether you're this person who's boasting and loud or arrogant, or if you're this person who's always in the dumps and telling people so, it's the same thing. You have pride. Why? Because you're thinking of yourself and promoting self and drawing attention to yourself, and it can be a problem. Now, time out. Rabbit trail. If you're hurting, really, If you're struggling, really, should you say it? Of course, yes. And should you ask people to pray for you and come and help you? Yes. The Bible's clear on that. But I'm saying people who live a life of loud, arrogant boasting or people who live a life of, you know, that feigned shyness and down in the dumps, uh, 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 black cloud over you so you can tell people um, uh, you're having a terrible day so that you'll draw attention to yourselves. Believe it or not, people, there are some who do that and both are pride. Are you catching that? That's powerful. That's powerful. What does the Bible call us to live like? Well, the Bible says whether you're, you know, uh, an extrovert or an introvert doesn't matter. You can still live in humility. What do you do? See, what you do is you receive your worth and your uh, legitimacy and your value in the Lord so that inside you feel good about who you are in Christ And that allows you to operate in a 
a, a, a world of humility in which you can say, yes, I admit I need help out of my, outside of myself and depend upon the Lord. I even depend upon the Lord uh, for my worth and my value. And so whether or not the circumstances are great, worldly circumstances, or in the toilet circumstances, it doesn't matter to me because I'm deriving my worth and self um, and my value from the Lord. And wherever he takes me, whatever he does, that's what I'm uh, going to do and I'm happy about it. It allows you to live a life free of these kinds of things. What kinds of things? Well, let me just ask you or tell you something. Prideful people are people who always feel slighted, hurt. Whether you're the person who lives uh, in a gregarious, boastful way, or if you're a person who's always putting yourself down and feigning shyness and, uh, 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 you know, uh, not exerting yourself and uh, drawing attention to yourself in that way. You always feel slighted and hurt. Do you always feel slighted and hurt? You might have pride in your life, defined by the Bible, not defined by the way the world defines it. Do you hold grudges? Do you have haughtiness? Are you, do you have contempt for others? Do you have contempt for others, whether you say it and speak it out loud, or you don't say it, you hold it inside? If you do, you might be a prideful person. And here's what I want you to see. That the Bible says, in order to access the grace of God, catch it, you must be a humble person. I must be a humble person. So, let's examine one more thing. Grace. You see, for a long time in the Christian life, I thought, and we've taught this several times, but I thought grace was just for salvation. You know the most famous verse, or at least one of the top ten most famous verses of the Bible. It's by grace, through faith, that we're saved. It's by grace, through faith, that we're saved. We come into the family of God by grace. Of course, you even know Romans 3.24. It says, you were justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. We come into the family of God by grace. But listen, grace isn't just to come into the family of God, praise the Lord that it is, but it's also all of uh, the way in which we live. We live all by the grace of God. Let me just give you some examples. You could look these up Later, in Acts 20.32, and I've said these several times in my teachings or our teachings here, God gives grace to build us up. Who needs build up today? I, I do. Acts 20.32. In 2 Timothy 2.1, you know you don't pull yourselves up by the bootstraps in the Christian life. No, no, no. God says he gives us grace to be strong in 2 Timothy 2.1. Well, how about this? How do we become godly? How does our life change and become more Christ-like? What's sanctification? How do we do sanctification? Well, uh, Titus, as I've said to you several times, Titus 2, 11 and 12. How about this? Uh, it, it, grace brings sanctification and teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live what? soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And the way to do it is by the grace of God, by the resource of God, by participating with God. Hebrews 13, 9 says this, the heart, who needs a heart that's established, that's secure, 
and rock solid and, and, and won't be uh, uh, moved by the winds and waves of, uh, of present circumstances or hard circumstances. The heart, uh, Hebrews 13 says, verse 9, is established by grace, and we won't be blown around by wrong doctrines. It even gives us grace to learn and to know what's right and to be a discerner, it says. I've already read you, Hebrews 12, 28, giving us grace to serve. 2 Corinthians 4, 15, causes us to be thankful. Man, do I need that one. Grace, God's grace, his resource, his uh, uh, working in and through you is uh, the, the, the stuff that he gives you to live the life, grace, even causes us to be thankful. There's grace to obey in Romans 1.5 and in Romans 5.2, grace to stand. Colossians 1.6, by the way, even tells us that there's grace for us in Jesus Christ to bear fruit, to bear fruit. Man, don't you want to be a fruitful person, right? Okay, so check this out. As I've talked to you about humility, and, or excuse me, pride and what that looks like, and humility and what that kind of looks like, and also grace, I just want you to see this. James 4.6 says that we can access this grace the grace that, come, that gets us into the family of God and the grace that enables us to live our lives in a dark and hurting world, he gives it to us when we're humble. He gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. How about this verse in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 5? It's one we should, all should learn. This is opposed to prideful worldly thinking. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Let that sink into your heart, folks. As a prideful person where pride uh, tries to enter in, our sufficiency isn't from God or ourselves, it's from God, you're sufficient, you're enough, you're great, you're fantastic. You're, because when you're relying upon the grace of God, you know in your heart that you're sufficient and it comes from God. Isn't that beautiful? Well, how about this? Romans 5.2, as I alluded to earlier, it says this. What, what's another thing that we need to access grace? We, we need faith. Jesus through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, Romans 5.2. So what do we do? We trust, we have faith to come into the family of God. But listen to this. Each day, all day, every day, minute by minute, second by second, as we encounter things in life like this. I don't know if I could even stand today. Trust and obey that God says he'll give you the grace to stand. Oh, man, I don't even know if I could even utter thankful words today. I'm so low and in the dust. Well, trust God that he'll give you the grace to be thankful, 2 Corinthians 4.15, and on and on and on. We're not to receive, the Bible tells us, God's grace in vain. Don't let God's grace come to you and let it just be empty there. No, redeem it. Put it to use. Use God's grace by his Spirit according to what God's word tells us 
we should do. Later on in the Bible, by the way, it tells us that we're stewards. Oh, I love this one. Of the manifold grace of God. What's a manifold? I'm not a car person. But as I understand it, a manifold delivers, is an air delivery system to places in the car that need the air. And if that's true, listen to this. What we're called to be as stewards of God are ones who deliver the grace of God because God's delivered the grace to us out to people. You catching it? Okay, so what does that matter to me? Well, I went through it because you understand that the enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're going to try, these enemies are going to try and get your desires to be bigger uh, than uh, your uh, desire to honor the Lord. And that's going to lead to wars and fights. Here the Lord says, no, do something different. Do something different. Look in verse 7. Submit to God. You see, a prideful person would never submit. You understand that? A prideful person doesn't submit. They don't want to submit. They want to be independent. Remember, we said that was one of the marks of prideful people. In fact, God says that he hates pride. Did you know that? In Proverbs 16, 16, and 7. It's an enemy of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, submit to God. Do this. Get into the proper rank. That's what the word means there in the Greek, like in the military. Fall under the Lord. In John 15, it says, abide in the Lord. Branch and vine, abide in the Lord. Submit to God and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other places in the Bible, remember this, it says, don't let the devil get a foothold in any of your life. What does that mean? Well, it can mean different things for different people. I can, in my life, the, the enemy of our soul can be an expert in who I am. And he can understand that maybe in my life, there's a certain foothold or a little crack or crevice that he can just hold on to that might be different than somebody else's life. And he tries to throw fiery darts at you in order so that he can gain a foothold. I watched this uh, thing, this show, over, the, um, over these uh, last few weeks a show on uh, Disney Plus called Free Solo. Free Solo, it's about a man who uh, for eight years, a young man, studied and thought about how he could uh, uh, repel, I guess that's what you call it, is a repel going up, whatever, climb up uh, uh, El Capitan and, uh, and uh, uh, Yosemite. I think it's Yosemite. Anyway, uh, he uh, decided that uh, he was going to uh, go up that mountain, but here's the catch. He didn't use any ropes. He didn't use any ropes. Well, he practiced with ropes, but then uh, a few years ago, he was a free soloist. And what this man did was incredible. He made notes about every <laughs> detail of the climb down to where he was going to stick his thumb on this move and this finger on this move and where his big toe would go. It was incredible. And it reminded me of the Bible, not that he was the devil, of course, but it reminded me of the, the Bible as the enemy of our souls looks and hunts for ways he can get just a thumb in there or a finger or a little foothold so that he can climb up and send fiery darts to you. 
Here it says, don't do that. Submit to God. Submit to God. What do we do so that there won't be wars and fights, so that we'll be living in peace and harmony as much as it's up to us? What do we do? We're to be people who submit to God and then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee from you and also draw near to God. This is a solid, totally true promise. If you will draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now catch it. Don't you ask yourself right here, Lord, how do I draw near to you? What, what do I practically do? What do I do, Lord? What do, what do I do in order to draw near to you, to submit to you and to draw near to you? What do, you, what do I do? Well, the next verse or the next part of the verse tells you, cleanse your hands you sinners. Bible tells us that judgment starts at the house of God. Oh, that we would be people who would agree with God in our sin, that we would call pride and contempt for others and thinking of self and all the things that we uh, talked about earlier and call it what it is, sin. Christians, search our hearts Draw near to God. How? By cleansing your hands. The things we do, the actions we take. Are the actions prideful? Or are we doing it out of humble love fueled by God's grace? And then purify our hearts. Remember, it wasn't just our actions Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. It was our motives that count too. Who here oftentimes does godly things but not in the right motives? I've done that. Oh, that God would cleanse us there. We would pray about this. We would say to the Lord and agree with the Lord, Lord, even our thoughts, or excuse me, even our thoughts and our motives aren't pure. We need cleansed there. And look what will happen. Look what happens. Lord, we need the grace. Thank you so much that you forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and even can purify our hearts and can keep us, look at this, single-minded, not double-minded. Well, he goes on and he says, well, lament and mourn and weep. Remember, Ecclesiastes says there's a time for every purpose under heaven. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Are we to be people who walk around with a frown on our face, always constantly crying? No. We should be the most joyous people in all of the world. And yet the Bible tells us, in the, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, we should recognize how poor we are. We're spiritually bankrupt without the Lord. We should mourn, he says in the Beatitudes, over our sins. He should, we should mourn. We should be ones who recognize that sin is uh, catastrophic and it alienates and we should mourn over our sin. Unfortunately, here in the West, I think sometimes we gloss over our sins. Here he says, don't let, uh, submit to God and don't let the enemy get any sort of foothold. Ask the Lord to come in to uh, uh, cleanse your hands and cleanse your hearts and then lament and warm and warn, uh, excuse me, mourn and weep over sin and the Lord will lift you up. Of course, the Lord will lift you up in due time, 1 Peter 5, 6, the Lord will exalt us. Well, he goes on to say this in uh, verse 11, 
Don't speak evil of one another, brethren. Where do wars and fights come from? Well, here's a big one. Prideful people try to make themselves feel better by speaking evil of somebody else. We talked about that last week. It's one of the great things uh, that uh, prideful people will do, that pride does. I'm so great, I must talk about that person, especially if they're not here, to make you, the one who's sitting with me, feel better about me and less about that person. That's what prideful people do, and it's sick and twisted. And here he says, don't do that. That's where wars and pride come from. Be so filled up with the Lord inside that you can live in humility, that, we, uh, uh, that one who admits you need help, even in your speech, who depends upon the grace of God, even in your speech, who doesn't think of self, but thinks of others, even in your speech. That's being humble. You get it? Don't, don't speak evil of one another, brothers or brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Just real quickly, who's judge? God is judge. Jesus is coming back in judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We leave that sort of judgment to the Lord. Well, there is one lawgiver, here it comes, who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you then to judge another? Who are you to judge another? Do you know this? In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it tells us that Jesus will even judge our motives. He will judge our motives. And and, and here, when we are ones who speak evil of somebody and then judge people incorrectly, we set ourselves up on the throne instead of the Lord, who's the lawgiver. You get that? We, we are taking the place of the Lord when we try to uh, uh, make this person here or make that, uh, this person there. In other words, there's only one who can judge the motives of the heart. The Bible always says that we are not to judge motives or action. We're not to judge unto salvation, and we're not to judge uh, uh, the motives of people. No, that's up to Jesus. He's the one That judges the motives. So the question becomes, should we ever judge? Well, we've talked about that on several occasions. Of course, we are called to judge in some ways. Not to judge as to motives or as to salvation or anything of that nature. But we are called to evaluate how people act based on their fruit. Because if the Bible calls something a sin and our brothers or sister are sinning, then we're called to gently restore one or to go and to uh, talk to them about it. And so how could we ever uh, uh, do that if we uh, weren't ones who were to evaluate and judge in that way? So watch what you say, people out there. Of course, we're not to judge as to uh, salvation or as to the motives of people, but when God calls something wrong and you're doing something that was wrong, other brothers and sisters are to come gently, circumspectly, without a log in their own eye. Get it out of there first before you go and talk to somebody else. But you are to go and talk to somebody else to to lovingly bring them back and to have them stop something. So uh, make sure we're clear on that. 
Well, keep going. Verse 13, come now who say today or tomorrow. We will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit. Because remember now, we, they lived uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. There was a lot of trade going on, a lot of commerce. And people who dealt in these sorts of things would say, yeah, you know, next year the price is going to go up or the price is going to go down or we're going to make a market over into, um, uh, you know, Asia Minor or we're going to take a market down into, uh, 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 you know, Africa or or wherever. And here uh, what uh, uh, the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is warning is, be careful about that. You don't know what, verse 14, will happen For what is your life? The Bible says that our life here on earth as we know it now is just a vapor. But we're going to another life. We're going to a a, a life of knowing Him, eternal life. Eternal life happens as soon as we come to know the Lord. But that is forever, that we're going to have eternal life, all of us. Whether we have eternal life in communion with Him or we have eternal life separated from Him, heaven or hell. But nevertheless, this life here is uh, just uh, for a little while. It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, what should we say? And see, here what I want you to see is even our speech in these areas, our presumptive speech tells people, tells yourself, tells us who we are. Are we a prideful person where God resists sending grace to that person? Or are we a humble person in which God gives grace to the humble? Humble people, although they plan things out, they're willing to say, but it's up to the Lord and what His will is for my life. And Look, in verse 15. Instead, here's what we ought to say. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Are you catching that? When you exclude God from your future plans, it's boasting and it's evil. It's as if you're saying, Lord, I want to be independent of you. Prideful. But when you say, Lord, I need you, uh, if you will, then we'll do this. See, you're living according to humility and grace. And here it says that you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Just uh, parenthetically, what, is, what should we know about the will of God? Well, Colossians 1 tells us that we should be filled with knowledge of his will. We should be filled with the knowledge of his, of his will. 2 Corinthians 8, he, he wants us to submit and yield to him. That's his will. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 5, it says, This is the will of God to avoid sexual immorality. Wow, does that need to be a word for today. Here's one I love and speak of often in here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. What's the will of God for your life? I love it when people ask me that. Here's why I love it. Because I repeat this verse back to them. To rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Now listen, I do believe that the Lord is concerned with where you go to college or what job you take, but I think the Lord is concerned more with who you are 
than where you are. Of course he's concerned where you are, but wherever he takes you, there he wants you to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, submit and yield to him, avoid sexual immorality, and then in John 15, what is the will of God for your life? I know it because I read it, and so do you. It's to abide in him and bear fruit that glorifies God. That's verses 6 and 18. It's to abide in him, early in the chapter of John 15, derive resource and strength, see, that's grace, and then bear fruit that glorifies God. That's the will of God for your life. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, verse 16. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, last verse 17, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it because of pride or he's lazy or he's ignorant, it's sin. Are you catching it? And what have we learned over the last several weeks that God will do in response to such sin? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us one big one. He'll chasten us. He chastens his kids. Of course he does. He chastens his kids to get us back. Uh, walking according to his will and not being prideful or lazy. When we know what we should be doing and don't do it, it's sin. And he chastens us. There's another thing I might put in there in 1 Corinthians 9. Might be a a case of where uh, rewards uh, aren't handed out, but that's for another day. Well, listen, here's how we started this and here's how we'll end it. Where do fights come from among you? Where do fights or wars and fights come from? Wars and fights uh, outside of the church amongst unbelievers, of course, come from pride and worldliness. Of course, it's a kingdom without, without God. But we live in a kingdom with God, and still there's wars and fights. And that's because we walk not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. And then the enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and especially the devil, pounce on that and try to send fiery darts. But when we live according to the grace of God, that it's accessed through humility and faith, our lives then take on meaning. And we get to the place where we're not double-minded, we're single-minded. And we can join with David in saying this. He said it, in Psalm 1611, it's an astounding statement. It's an astounding truth. May this be our hearts as we go out of here today and always. It's this. In verse 11, David said, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where do you want to be in life? Where do you want to be? Do you want to be prideful and independent and cut off from the great grace of God? Or do you want to receive all that God has for you, grace upon grace, so you're just sitting right there enjoying the pleasures that God gives forevermore? Well, that's easy. We want to be there. We want to be with the Lord, enjoying His pleasures forevermore. May we be people who more and more begin to understand how glorious and majestic our Father is, 
who sent his son. And now, for those who surrender their lives to all that Christ did, his death and his resurrection sends the spirit of Christ to live in our hearts. And we can enjoy God forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we come here this morning thankful and grateful seeing you as who you are, a just God, a God that must punish sin, seeing us for who we are. We're sinners. But Lord, by your Son, you've given us the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And for all those who count on his finished work and resurrection, you tell us, Lord, that we can have access and come boldly to your throne room. Thank you, Lord, for this and so much more, now and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.